0: When Cynthia came to TurboTax, she had just launched her new side gig, a true crime podcast. I'm a first-rate detective with a golden voice. As her TurboTax expert, I made her second income count by guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and her maximum refund. <clears throat> what did she do with that refund? Find out next week. Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. On the March with Howard's Army by Jim Wilkinson Part 4 Paradise Postponed If the opening weeks of a new year aren't drab enough following the festivities, there was no more in Rovers' first outings of 1981 to thrill anyone than there was, in the residual last few radio plays, of the egregious Christmas number one, There's No One Quite Like Grandma. It was a strange, contemplative, politically highly charged time. Most were coming to terms with December's global shock of John Lennon's violent death. Polish solidarity totem Lech Wałęsa was received by his fellow countrymen Pope John Paul II, as the Vatican welcomed the global symbol of working class struggle. I was 21 going on 22 that month, without any significant other, and finding it difficult after flunking out of university after a year to come to terms with the fact that a lot of my old mates weren't returning to their hometowns, but instead were making their way in the world where they'd studied or fallen in love. I found a new bunch of pals, and a whole new narrative within the plot of my life, which runs to this day, by deciding to go and net with Church Cricket Club, I never made a first-team player, but I still sit on Ewood and chat on the blower a couple of times a week with fellows I met in those times, and ended up living for many years in the Oswald Whistle area. But the Rovers and their fortunes were as important to me as anything, and the few buddies who had eschewed further education, plus the travelling blue and white merry men and women of the Accrington branch bus trips, were what passed for a raison d'etre. Another cold afternoon at Meadow Lane saw us dumped out of the FA Cup at the third round stage and a fourth nil-nil out of five league games at home to Watford was followed by an underwhelming 1-1 draw at Shrewsbury in which new midfielder Marshall Burke, selected in front of Duncan Mackenzie whose Ewood career was now sadly over, although we didn't know it at the time, netted. Burke and John Lowy. A rather effete centre-forward, signed from Sheffield Wednesday for £25,000, scored in a 2-0 home win over Orient to close the month. Burke was on target again the following week, completing a never-to-be-repeated, well, not by him anyway, sequence of five goals in six games. His goal at Luton, a brilliant bicycle kick, had only aesthetic value, however, as we were comfortably beaten by a David Pleat side that was destined to win the division a year later. Ricky Hill, Brian Steen, David Hill and co. I've never returned to Kenilworth Road, nor have any desire to. A few of us somehow blagged our way into their supporters' club, but rather wish we hadn't bothered after some hostile and threatening words and postures from the locals. It all took place in some kind of long corridor between rooms down one side of the ground, and making a hasty exit was like trying to negotiate your way down a crowded train carriage. Luton were one of the number of clubs in and around the automatic spots, Behind the hammers, who look certs. Sheffield Wednesday, Swansea, Notts County, and believe it or not, Grimsby Town also had designs on a top three finish. There were no playoffs, of course, but Rovers were well in touch, fluctuating around fourth and fifth spots. The Luton defeat was a rare pounding in the goals against Column, and by now Arnold was restored in goal with Kendall reverting to his promotion back four of Branigan, Keely, Fazakley, and Rathbone. De Vries had been jettisoned after a last failed attempt to establish him. David Hamilton had been added to the fringe of the squad, on a free transfer from Sunderland, one of what were still known as utility men, a midfielder who could fill in semi-adequately anywhere else, but his appearances were only made from the bench, until Bobby Saxton succeeded Kendall. The young boss's last throw of the dice in the transfer market still to this day sums up the lack of any resources at all, which beset Rovers back then. If ever it wanted a medium-sized statement of intent, and a few bob lashing out, well this was the time. You could transfer players all season then, up until about mid-March, when the deadline closed till the current season ended. But Kendall was forced to trade his happy wanderer Mackenzie, who might have been useful as spring firm the pitches up for another of football's itinerant travellers, the former Fulham hero, Viv Busby. Busby had enjoyed great prominence in Fulham's 1975 run to the FA Cup final, but nearing 32 he drifted out to the US to play for Tulsa and the curiously named Roughnecks after moderate spells at Norwich, Stoke and Sheffield United. It was straight swap, no cash involved. Blackburn Rovers, with the best manager they'd had for decades, on the cusp of a scarcely credible second successive promotion, didn't have a pot to piss in. Official. Busby made his bow in a 1-0 win courtesy of a wonderful Brotherston header at home to Derby and a week later at Ewood, Kent and his team suffered another blow. A Simon Garner opener had been equalised in spectacular fashion for virtue of the Riverside touchline by Wrexham's prolific Dixie McNeil, exactly the kind of guaranteed goal striker we should have signed, when Tony Parks was left felled by a tackle and stretchered off for what proved to be his final bow as a player. Parks had already begun learning with Kendall and assistant Mick Heaton to prepare for coaching after his career, and no one needs to be told how he served the club magnificently into the next millennium. But his loss as a player was another blow to hopes of a miracle end to the season. I was in Barbados watching the Test match as we drew successive away games, 0-0 at Grimsby, 1-1 at QPR. No idea how I saved up for it. All I ever remember doing from age 15 onwards was spurting every penny I earned or was given on records, beer and trying to interest girls. Oh yeah, and I admit I wasted a bit too. And I was still in downtown Kingston when we beat Sheffield Wednesday 3-1 in a game televised the day after in those days as the kick-off match before Ewood's biggest crowd of the season. 19,222. Spate Busby, his only Rovers goal, and Kendall, forever leading from the front in a big game, the bigger, the more to be relished in this case, all scored to put Rovers onto the cusp of the three automatic spots available. That major success, however, was soured by one isolated incident of the season, which, possibly more than any other, scuppered our chances of returning to Division 1 for the first time in 14 years. A crunching Mel Stirland assault left Noel Brotherston, brave, willing, non-stop Noel, crumpled on the ground, Stretched off with his part in the promotion quest ended. With Mackenzie long gone, he was the lone provider of flair and a spark of creativity, in a side which found it easy to shut foes out, but much harder to open them up. It was a cruel and ultimately decisive misfortune, for the last bloke who deserved it, a popular servant who was destined for an even grimmer of fate years later. I have stood at Oldham, Barnsley and Notts County on the cruelest winter afternoons imaginable, but I can honestly say I've never been as cold as I was at Stamford Bridge, or as relieved after a sadly inevitable nil-nil draw. Check out Chelsea's results under Jeff Hurst that season. I think they only scored in about three games in five months at one point. I was mighty relieved to get on a warm bus. It was one of the rare occasions when the heating fans seemed to actually work, full of blokes in a similar state of disarray, using a bucket to urinate in, whilst a handful of females averted their eyes. John Pittard's luxury Viscount Central, complete with actual tables, proper bogs, were out of your financial range when every can and pint counted. At least unlike Rovers, the Accrington branch coach did have a pot to piss in. A week later, it was another goalless draw, Notts County benefiting to the greater extent as they left Ewood content with the point which kept them, not us, in the promotion positions. There was to be no getting away from the fact that the match at Swansea, who were almost matching us neck and neck the following week, was going to be as crucial as they come. Not only were the arch-rivals for the prize, they had amongst their number an arch-villain in the minds of most roverites. I'm not sure how long we sat on that bus at tea time staring out on a drizzly, misty Swansea seafront, but if ever a single bad experience coloured someone's judgement about a location, that half hour or whatever it was, made my mind up that it was a place I never wanted to go back to, and to this point, I never have. We sat there in shocked silence, peering through the murk, all living things and buildings devoid of form, praying that nobody would chuck a prick through the window of such an inviting stationary target. Nobody talked much for a good while after a defeat on the road, and after a bad defeat, nobody ever wanted to be the first prick to be shot down, told to effing shut up, and looked at with utter disgust for attempting a cheery wisecrack or anything along the lines of, Never mind, it's only football, worse things happen at sea. Maybe after an hour or so on the road, you'd begin to hear the murmur of conversation, the game being dissected quietly maybe, and eventually it would just about become permissible to emit laughter or start looking forward enthusiastically to a few beers in Stafford later on. But this night was different. There would be an experience, maybe even worse to come, but right now, 2-0 defeat to promotion arch-rivals seemed as bad as it could get other than the almost unbearable fact that the architect of Swansea's win had been the reviled bogeyman himself, former Claret, Leighton James. Jinking and dribbling and generally pulling that previous watertight defence all over the place, James was exactly the kind of creative, end-product player that Howard Kendall now lacked without the departed Mackenzie and the injured Brotherston. Kendall had attempted to shore up the midfield at the Vetchfield with local lad Paul Round. But with a front three of Garner, Lowey and Busby, who Kendall had seen enough of after that afternoon not to bother with a game, it failed miserably against a side managed by John Toshack, which was good enough to qualify for the UEFA Cup a year later, after an excellent initial season in the First Division. Incredibly, all was not lost, and a week later a 1-0 win at home to Bristol City thanks to the restored marshall Burke's header, combined with results elsewhere, put us into third position with four games. All against sides below us, albeit three of the four, were battling against relegation. Kendall had recalled the banished Crawford from Central League exile to replace Busby. But when the manager most needed a burst of goals, like the ones Crawford had fired us to promotion a year before, there were none left in this obstinate striker's locker. A real betrayal of trust. The repeated goal of school line had become almost emblematic of our refusal to buckle. It was Kendall's cluff-like determination to get something, however parsimoniously, from every single game. However, it proved our downfall over six days at Easter. No one was complaining too much about a creditable shutout and stalemate at Newcastle on the Tuesday night. A decent contingent of 2,500 or so Lancastrians swelled the St James's Park gate to a whopping 13,128. The concept of the football-crazy Geordie Nation, which would pack the Gallagate to watch 11 Toon Army shirts dry, had not yet been invented to fit the post-Keegan revival narrative. But the outcome was also inevitable, and Rovers really needed goals on Good Friday and Easter Monday, at home to Bolton and away at Deepdale. To this end, Kendall played his final card and recalled Stonehouse, without a goal since the new year, and returned Crawford to the Stiffs. But it was to no avail. You can't remember too much detail about a 0-0 draw 34 years ago, particularly when you've sat through a dozen that particular season, but I just seem to hazily recollect that there were plenty of near misses and woodwork struck, crosses flashing across the face of goal against Bolton and Preston, but the outcome still, two blanks. You were waiting to lift the low roof off the town end, gig lane style, but it was always just over, or just past. The two goals Swansea scored were to be the only two that we let in during the last nine games in a season, replete with statistical curiosities, but failing to score in six of those ourselves was costly. Out of the promotion places now on goal difference, and with little prospect of making that up unless we banged a bucket full against someone, Kendall dropped Garner. It seems inconceivable to contemplate now, but the Lincolnshire poacher had only been accommodated out in a nebulous and unsuited wide roll in any case, in Noel Brotherston's absence, as he had only found the net once since October. But he suffered the indignity of losing his place to Crawford for the final pair of games, in what would be Kendall's farewell to Ewood. We had a rare giddy turn found a modicum of swagger and thumped the desperately poor Newcastle side, withdrawn with ten days earlier, 3-0. A Stonehouse penalty was added to by Burke and Spate, but with nobody really firmly believing the miracle would happen after such a barren spell, just over 10,600 turned up, including, it has to be admitted, a decent number of Geordies. Not exactly a town wrapped with promotion fever then. The final day saw the faithful and hopeful ferry down to Eastville. A strange looking stadium set below a mini spaghetti junction series of interlocking motorways and overpasses with a greyhound track running round the pitch. Rovers had to do a point better than Swansea. The main hope vested in the fact that Preston North End, Swansea's opponents at Deepdale, themselves needed a result to avoid relegation. Rovers went ahead through Stonehouse but Swansea dominated our neighbours. Despite the false rumour spreading across the Bristol terraces at one point that North End were level, or in front. They weren't, of course. And though we did our bit with a 1-0 win, one more Howard Kendall clean sheet, it was not to be. Another ashen-faced, silent coach ride home followed. It allowed us all to absorb what most had accepted in their heart of hearts beforehand. Good things happen occasionally if you come from round here, but miracles are very few and far between. There really was a coming together on the motorway services of our friends and Swanses at some point on the second day of May, celebrated in that song for years, because I was there, but I had no inclination to risk life and limb to become enjoined in combat or hurl insults. I think I just sat with a coffee and heard a bit of argy-bargy going on at a safe remove. I don't think I ever went to another Accrington branch coach after that, and a last whiz round Stafford playing mother hen to the little red redhead schoolgirl Leslie but continue to see the other kids and older fans at away games and bump into some of the old ones still with us to this day. Kendall, as we all surely knew he would be, was gone within a week to Everton, the club he'd served with such distinction as a player. He said on a later occasion that rejoining them, he was giving up a sweet romance for what was his real marriage. His success at Goodison dwarfed even his coaching and managerial achievements and promotions with Stoke and with us. It remains unfathomable that he was never capped by or asked to manage his country. He was still a better, fitter, more complete and influential midfielder in his two years at Ewood than, say, John Joe Shelby is today. What a Rolls-Royce he must have been in Everton's title side. I don't think I really believe that people look down on us once they've gone, but if they do, perhaps Howard would have smiled wryly at us lining up with five in midfield and drawing nil-nil at home after the Ewood crowd paid homage to him last night. I bet he wouldn't have half-minded an eight million pound, twenty-five goal championship striker at deadline day in 1981. But who knows? Hamstrung by a similar lack of spark and invention, he may have finished up sticking him in on the wing. In any case, it wasn't to be. The Kendall legacy was considerable. Bobby Saxton, a capable, honest man without Howard's easy charm and played-down charisma, inherited some good players, most notably a back four which Howard had made a silk purse from sow's ears with who gave the club sterling service. The only one he took to Everton was Arnold, who deserved a brief spell in the spotlight. He had a look at Keeley on loan, and he lasted 25 minutes of a torrid Merseyside derby, before a red card, and a return to Ewood to lick his wounds and redevelop his reputation as a cult hero, whose mastery of the dark defending arts is celebrated to this day. It's probably testament to Kendall, that the decidedly unsexy Saxton occasionally got a bit of stick in comparison for keeping Rovers in the top half of the division on a similar budget and finishing 5th and 6th, remember, no playoffs then, after more brief aspirations of promotion were ignited and then dampened. Don Mackay took it a little bit further and got us as close as Kendall before Uncle Jack decided enough was enough and were having a real crack at it, but none of that would have happened. If Howard hadn't got us out of Division Three in nineteen eighty, I firmly believe that. Thanks for everything, Howard. That was on the march with Howard's army by Jim Wilkinson, first published on the Blue Eyed Boy WordPress site in October fifteen, shortly after the passing of Howard Candle. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the ninetieth minute. All you mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Your mate's already got booked for double dipping and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.